Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am honored to say that we are joined by Congresswoman Karen Bass. Congresswoman Bass represents the 37th Congressional District in Southern California and is about to begin her sixth term in office. Congresswoman Bass serves on the House Judiciary Committee, the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, where she is the chair of the Subcommittee on Africa, Global Health, Global Human Rights, and International Organizations. She is also chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Very busy woman. Welcome, Congresswoman Bass. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to start by talking about something that's in the news a lot and asking you to address an argument that I hear about frequently, which is obviously President-elect Biden is now putting together his cabinet. Governor Newsom in California has a number of big decisions to make. And I keep hearing the argument, just pick the best people, regardless of skin color. Chief Justice John Roberts, the head of our judiciary, famously said the best way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Why is it important to have diversity in government? Well, because you want the best people. I think one of the main reasons why diversity doesn't happen is because when people look for um, individuals to fill positions, they tend to do it from a very narrow point of reference, people that they know, people that they've worked with, and they don't cast a net that is wide. And I think it is really critical, especially when you are putting together the White House, that you want the White House staff and the White House leadership to look like the United States of America in 2020, not the United States of America in the 1950s. Is that because people who look different and are different experience and navigate the world in a different way? Is it because it's important to say to our youth, look, there is somebody who looks exactly like you, who has attained a power of a, a position of power. Is it important for all of us to know that when you walk into a room, expect to see a woman, expect to see a person of color, and in any room of power, that should just be the norm? Well, right. I think the norm should be when you walk into a room, it looks like the country and you don't even think twice about it. You don't even think about who you should expect to see. You you walk into a room and you expect it to look like all the other rooms that you're in. The reality is, though, is that power in this country since its beginning has been concentrated with white men. And if that has been the case from the beginning up until this day, then we really shouldn't be surprised when we have to take the extra step to diversify. Congresswoman Bass, are you optimistic that we will continue to take that extra step and that our representatives will look more like the rest of us in the near future, maybe a 10-year-old now when she wants to run for office in 20, 25 years, that it will be totally normal, that she'll not be asked who's going to take care of her kids, that nobody will wonder why she's in the room? Well, if you mention a 10-year-old, I certainly hope by the time that 10-year-old is old enough that they would make assumptions completely like that. But, uh, but I really do believe it comes down to who's in power. It is not just going to happen naturally. For example, unfortunately, in our partisan environment, you have the Republican Party that is, is, it is not diverse at all and has a very 
uh, shaky commitment to diversity. If you were to come here into the House of Representatives when all of us are on the floor of the House, the room is completely segregated. One half of the room where the Republicans are is overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly Mel, although they did make some improvements in this election. If you look at the side of the room where the Democrats sit on, it looks like America. And so as long as we have one party that is not committed to diversity, then I think diversity is going to go back and forth depending on which party is in charge. Congresswoman Bass, one of the things that Joe Biden can do to uh, unite the country is to just change the tenor. So are there a few things that you would like to see him do, not just uh, during the transition, but the first 100 days in office? Well, you know, it's very hard for me to think beyond COVID because the health, economic, and social impact of COVID has been so all-encompassing and devastating that that is the number one thing. And and I think that president-elect is already showing that. He's showing that by the first thing he did was establish a COVID task force. He's showing that by bringing all the experts to the table, making sure that Fauci is there, appointing his health team. And he understands that it is completely tied to our economy. So our economy is not going to get back uh, uh, where it should be until we have mastered the um, the pandemic. And then just in terms of the social aspects, you can take in so many examples, but I always like to point out education. We had an achievement gap to begin with. Now that gap is going to be so much wider because in low-income schools, you're going to have a generation of young people who really have missed an entire calendar year of school. And so I think that that it has to be the focus of the first 100 days and hopefully not longer. It's funny, you mentioned the COVID task force. I am not a fan of our current president. That is actually not even a partisan statement. It's just because I'm someone who cares about things like the rule of law. And when President-elect Biden announced the COVID task force, that's actually the moment that I got the most emotional because I saw that there are adults in the room, there are experts in the room, and you have a medical background. I know that you're a former uh, physician's assistant. And as we move into this next phase of COVID, as you said, it's the pressing issue uh, medically, economically, educationally, in terms of equality. How can we ensure that people feel comfortable getting the vaccine and particularly communities of color who studies indicate thus far, understandably, are leery of of the vaccine? Well, definitely communities of color, but also the whole anti-vaccine movement is predominantly white. So there are an awful lot of people that are concerned about vaccines. And one of the things that I believe that the new president is going to have to do is he's going to have to do a massive public education campaign because we have suffered in this country from disinformation from the top. And we talked earlier about that um, news station and, and talk radio that continue to this day to put out misinformation, how anybody in front of a camera or a microphone could tell people to take hydroxychloroquine 
or could tell people that wearing a mask should be a question of individual choice is just a borderline criminal. I mean, again, we're on the verge of 300,000 dead Americans in less than a year and a president who has never even acknowledged their deaths, let alone their lives. For me, the avoidability, not of the pandemic, but about the havoc that it has caused in our country is the thing that's just hardest to take when we're all being asked to sacrifice so much. It's exactly what you spoke about, Congresswoman Bass, which is that we have such a high percentage, a disproportionate percentage of COVID deaths and compared to our population. And you mentioned something that I try and think about a lot, which is disinformation. And this is something obviously that is happening right now with respect to the pandemic, but it also happened during the election. And it's something that I struggle with as a professor when my students very earnestly come to me and say, I read this or I saw this. And I have to explain to them that it's just not true. And I'm trying to come to a place where I can say something other than, you have to trust me on this one and teach them a little bit about media literacy. But from your perspective as a lawmaker, when it comes to disinformation, how should we tackle this problem? How can we get back on the same script? Do we need legislation? Do we need media literacy? Do we need all of the above? You know, Of course, being mindful of the First Amendment in the background. Well, being mindful of the First Amendment, we have to figure out what to do because you have misinformation that is going to, not is, has contributed to people losing their lives. And that, to me, I don't know why, and again, I'm not an attorney, I don't know why that's not similar to yelling fire in the middle of a theater, which is what's always used. I mean, how can you put out information as an authority figure and, and that information causes direct harm and is directly wrong. I mean, we want to hold social media accountable. And I do think that, that we should. But when you have a TV network <laughs> that does that, not 24 hours a day, because really they only do that in about three or four of their shows, where the people will come on and directly lie, lie about the election, say that it was fraudulent, um, not completely amplify that he won, but actually raise suspicion as to whether or not uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris will be legitimate. You know, they're, they're, we really need to take a look at this in our country. And it, it's ironic for me because I do work in foreign policy. I, I go to Africa and I am supposed to preach democracy to Africans and how they have elections. And one of the things that we always say is, before an election or any time, you don't have hate speech, you don't put out misinformation about voting, all of the things that we have watched take place here on a regular basis. And so it's a question of our national standing, but it's also a question of our international standing because the world looks at us. You know, there's a lot of countries that we can't even travel to now because people don't trust whether or not we're well or sick with COVID. I mean, it, it's an astounding uh tumble of where we used to be seen internationally and how we're regarded now. And, and of course, you know, we have made a decision in our country thus far that uh, we would rather that all of the information, even uh, false information, be out there. And we've made the decision that the marketplace will just sort it out. And uh, I think we're going to have to reckon 
with that shortly, of course, a decision that essentially the founders made because of our strong First Amendment tradition. And I want to pivot to something else that the founders decided, uh, which is our structure of government and specifically the structure of the House of Representatives. Now, congressional approval, as I'm sure you know, somewhere around 20% right now. And I'm curious as to what you think we can do institutionally with respect to Congress to try and increase trust in government and not just trust, but also are there ways that we can reform the structure of our government that you think, if I could talk to the founders, I would tell them, number one and number two, you got to do this. Well, the founders did a lot of things. We don't really, I don't know if I want to go down that that road, but, um, you know, if you look at our structure in a lot of ways, how about the Senate? How about there's two senators from every state and we have some states with a population of 700,000 and our state with a population of 40 million. I mean, you know, so I think that there's a lot of issues in in our the Electoral College. I mean, I think that there are a lot of issues that might have made sense in the 1700s that make little to no sense in the 21st century. The problem is, though, is that if we were to reform our Constitution, it would scare me to death because I think that a number of people would come in and, and reform the Constitution in ways that would be extremely hurtful to some communities. Yeah. I I mean, what you just described are two huge anti-majoritarian institutions, the Senate and the Electoral College as a result. And uh, and this is exactly what I think when I teach election law and people say, let's have an amendment to overturn Citizens United. And I think, let's be really careful about what happens with our tinkering of the Constitution right now. Congresswoman Bass, before I let you go, there are a number of open seats now on the federal level and in our home state of California, Governor Newsom has an amazing opportunity to reshape California. There obviously is an open Senate seat right now, and you are someone who's talked about very frequently to fill that seat. I've heard you uh, very respectfully say, I'm not going to give my pitch uh, to Governor Newsom. Right. And I'm wondering if I could come at the question a slightly different way, which is, If you had the opportunity to pick, what characteristics would you like to see somebody who's going to be the next senator from California have? Well, uh, to me, when I think of elected office, so it's not specific to to the Senate, uh, I'm always uh, interested in people who want to run for office and be in office who are very strong uh, with social justice, uh, who have a commitment to uh, making sure that the people who are the least of these make sure that there's a safety net for people, that people aren't just left to fend for themselves. There is a a number of my colleagues that I would characterize as being social Darwinists, the survival of the fittest. And, uh, And I think that we are the richest country in the history of the world, and we should be able to provide for all of our people. Those are the things I look for. Now, of course, I believe that in the Senate, there needs to be representation. And in a little over a month, There will be no African-American women in the U.S. Senate and, frankly, just two African-American men, one Democrat and one Republican. And so I think in 2020, it is shameful that there will not be representation. And so to me, I think that's very important. Congresswoman Bass, we've learned a lot from you. We'd like to learn a little bit more about you. I always end this podcast with the same, hopefully fun, uh, three questions for our guests. And here we go. Question number one, 
which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Geez, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, when I think of a famous person, I always think of Harriet Tubman, but I hadn't thought about having dinner with her. Let's stay on the food theme for a moment. Uh, okay. You're, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal with you. What is it? I would bring salmon, <laughs> spinach, <laughs> and a baked potato. I've never said this before, but wrong answer. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's entirely up to you. Last question. You get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? Oh, one superpower for an hour? It would be to eliminate poverty. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing some very frightening statistics when it comes to not just before the pandemic, but now during the pandemic, one in six uh, families struggling with food uh, instability, which is a nice way of saying that they're hungry. Food um, and a president who could care less. Yes. And I don't want to um, end on that note, but I know that the scarcest resource that we all have right now is time. And Congresswoman Vass, I want to thank you very much for spending your time with us and for passing judgment with us. You are very welcome. I'm happy to have participated and I uh, hope we can do it again. You can find Congresswoman Bass on Twitter at Rep Karen Bass. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. We want to thank all of our listeners for your support. We're doing great in the ratings and extremely grateful for everybody for listening and for having these conversations. And we will see you next time.